0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: This morning, we begin a three week sermon series on our church's rhythms. Our rhythms describe what it is that we are doing as a church. If you've been here for a while, this will be a refresher for you. But if you're new to Pearl, this will be a great introduction for you about what it is that we're trying to do here at this community. My hope for this series is that it's helpful for us. For the last few months, we've been resting and traveling and playing, really for the first time in a couple of years because of COVID. But now summer is coming to its end. Autumn is upon us. Familiar patterns and routines are beginning to take place. We're starting to establish recurring dates on the calendar. And so as summer ends and autumn begins, this feels like an appropriate time for us to remember what it is that we're trying to do. Uh, But first, for those of you who are grieving the end of summer, I'd like to read a poem about the extravagance of fall which is right around the corner. It's a poem by the great Wendell Berry, who has deeply influenced a lot of our thought here about life together at Pearl Church. The poem reads, Slowly, slowly they return To the small woodland let alone Great trees outspreading and upright Apostles of the living light Patient as stars, they build in air, tier after tier, a timbered choir, stout beams upholding weightless grace of song, a blessing on this place. They stand and waiting all around, uprisings of their native ground, downcomings of the distant light, they are the advent they await. Receiving sun and giving shade, their life's a benefaction made, and is a benediction said over the living and the dead. In fall, their brightened leaves released, fly down the wind, and we are pleased to walk on radiance amazed. O light, come down to earth, be praised. Isn't that gorgeous? Who's ready for the leaves to turn? And so as the leaves begin to turn, and as we look forward to walking upon radiance amazed, let us recall what it is that we're doing together. Uh, There's an old movie that I used to love called Sneakers. Anyone remember that movie? It's a long time ago. Yeah, like four of us. Good. (laughs) In that movie, one of the main characters who helped to save the world is asked by the United States government, hey, what can we give you? We are indebted to you. We'll give you anything. And he thought about it for a moment and he responded, you know what I really could go for is a Winnebago and world peace. Winnebago and world peace. Now, Winnebago may not be anyone's desire, but world peace? Or perhaps just peace? Like, peace within our own selves, peace with others, peace among the nations, peace with creation, peace with our sense of the divine? Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want peace? But you see, that's the dream. That is the divine dream. Dream. It's a dream realized at the end of our sacred story in Revelation 21 and 22 in which we are able to see the consummation of peace in a world that is fully, completely, and wonderfully integrated by love. In this renewed world, individuals are no longer alone or in pain or sick or filled with shame and guilt. At the end of this story, in this renewed world, relationships are harmonious and intimate and kind. In this renewed world, the nations who throughout most of the book of Revelation are described as fractured and against God in warring with one another. And in, in this book, at the end of the story, the nations are fully at peace. And creation is whole and full and ripe with life. And God Well, at the end of the revelation, God is no longer separate or other or somehow far, far away, but realized as being ever present among humankind. It is a beautiful dream. If you meditate upon Revelation 21 and 22, it's an intoxicating dream. It's truly a divine dream, perhaps a dream that many of us humans have ceased to even dream about over these last couple years as everything seems to be getting worse and worse, and yet there's this elevated vision of a world at peace. And so at Pearl, that is our dream. Our dream that we imagine and desire is nothing less than the divine dream which is the consummation of peace in a world integrated by divine love. Oh, but saying that is like kind of like asking the United States government for world peace. It's just, it's too big. It's too big. So how do we, a small Christian faith community in the north end of downtown Portland, how do, how do we actually practically move ourselves forward and, and do our part in helping to move the world forward toward this divine dream day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year? To answer this important question, I'd like to begin with three propositions that I think are true. Uh, Proposition number one, humans are deeply shaped by stories. We're deeply shaped by stories. Uh, Very few humans look at their lives as a list of facts. I mean, you could say, you know, this is when I was born, and I had these parents and this many children. I grew up in this neighborhood. But more often than not, all of these facts are woven into this tapestry of story that we tell about ourselves and that we hear about others through facts are most often wrapped up in narratives, narratives we've read, narratives we've observed on screens, narratives that we've been told by parents and friends and mentors and professors and theologians and scholars. And many of these narratives contribute to our own narrative, right? Like our story about ourselves, our story about others our story about this world that we live in and our place in the world our story about god and those parts of story that we deeply truly believe that just sit right at the center of our souls those stories that give shape to how we see it all well those aren't just stories those are sacred stories We might not call those stories sacred and some of our stories might have components and moments and parts and pieces that that feel tragic within our story. And yet we are deeply shaped in psyche, soul, mind, and life by story. Story is very grounding for human beings. And here's a second proposition. The tables that we share with others, the systems within which we abide most often, most deeply shape our sacred stories. The family that you grew up in, those people that you call friends, those people that you might refer to as enemies, those tables that you consistently share with others, persuasively shape that which you think and feel about yourself and others, the world, and even God. And a final proposition. Our sacred stories and tables we share with others animate our lives and so we could actually step back we could observe our stories and how we see it all and how we talk about it all and how we see ourselves fit within it all and we could ask ourselves how am i primarily motivated am i primarily motivated by guilt am i primarily motivated by shame am i primarily motivated by fear How about power or sacrifice or wealth or a, some kind of sense of duty You see, your animation, my animation, our collective animation in this world can be directly connected to our sacred stories and to the tables that we share with others. Now, I'd like to return to the question that got me talking about these three propositions. How do we, a community dreaming about the divine dream of peace, how do we actually practically move toward that dream? How do we embody it? How do we take tangible steps forward answer divine love we believe this with our whole heart here at Pearl we believe this is central to the story and life of Jesus we believe that this is the function of good religion in the world if it is to truly be good And to offer any kind of answer, to offer any other kind of animation, like guilt or shame or fear or power or sacrifice or wealth or duty, you name any other kind of animation, these animations will not set us on a path toward uh, the audacious dream of God, which is the consummation of peace in all things. And so, how are we to be animated by divine love? Answer, We surround ourselves again and again and again by sacred story. We tell these stories over and over and over and over again. And common tables. We spend time around tables filled with diverse people and we declare over and over and over to ourselves and everyone else. We all belong. We all belong. We all belong. You take a loving story and a loving table, and you make that part of the way that you live your life, the way that you experience community, and it deeply shapes how you understand everything. Loving story, loving table, loving story, loving table, over and over again. And so here at Pearl, we say that we're cultivating a sacred story and a common table that animate our lives by love. But before talking about our rhythm of sacred story, I want to briefly talk about the word cultivate, because that word is super important to us here at Pearl. To begin, here at Pearl, we are not accomplishing missions. You, and hopefully I'll get a hearty amen here, you are not a mission. Amen? Have you ever been the recipient of some kind of system in which you are a mission? We got to get you to do this. We got to get you to think this. We have to get you to believe this. And pop, you know, you go through the machine, you come out the other side, you are a fully human, wonderful specimen of life in the world. No, that's just not how it works pearl we're not accomplishing missions we don't think this is how people grow this church this gathering the things that we do together week by week and month by month and year by year this is sacred interaction of diverse human beings our life together is not a mission to be accomplished or an objective to be achieved or a goal to be checked off a list you are too valuable life is too precious And this church is not a business, it's a community of human beings. Earlier I mentioned that Wendell Berry has deeply influenced our thoughts on life together, and he has many books, but one of my favorite is his book, Home Economics, and it's filled with various essays that he's written. And one chapter is an essay titled, Six Agricultural Fallacies. And this is a chapter that we return to again and again here at Pearl with our staff and with our board and with our core volunteers. And I'd like to read and briefly discuss two of Barry's six agricultural fallacies. Uh, Here's the first fallacy. Fallacy number one, that agriculture may be understood and dealt with as an industry. Barry says this is a fallacy. He writes, this assumption is false. First of all, because agriculture deals with living things and biological processes, whereas the materials of industry are not alive and the processes are mechanical. That agriculture can produce only out of the lives of living creatures means that it cannot for very long escape the qualitative standard. That is, in addition to productivity, efficiency, decent earnings, and so on, agriculture must have health. Thus, the farmers differs from the industrialist in that the farmer is necessarily a nurturer, a preserver of the health of creatures. I love that. Thus the farmer, or, or maybe we could replace farmer with, with church. Thus the church differs from the industrialist in that the church is necessarily a nurturer, a preserver of the health of creatures. That, I believe, is good religion. You see, humans are not missions that get forced through a machine and pop out at the other end, complete. No, humans are living, breathing, conscious mysteries that must be nurtured and preserved. And so through the lens of cultivation, it's our intention to try and nurture life here. We'd love for you to to feel and to notice and to observe that we're trying to nurture your wholeness and your life. And also at Pearl, we're trying to preserve that which is good. And so through the lens of cultivation, it's our intention to nurture life and to preserve life. And one more fallacy. It's a second fallacy. Um, It reads that productivity is a sufficient standard of production. So this is an agricultural fallacy, that productivity is a sufficient standard of production. Barry writes, by and large, the most popular way of dealing with American agricultural problems has been to praise American agriculture. For decades, we have been wandering in a blizzard of production statistics pouring out of the government, the universities, and the agribusiness corporations. No politician's brag would be complete without a tribute to the American farmer who is said to be single-handedly feeding 75 or 100 or God knows how many people. American agriculture is fantastically productive, and by now we all ought to know it. And yet, the American agriculture is also fantastically expensive. The costs are in loss of soil, loss of farms, loss of farmers, soil and water pollution, food pollution, the decay of our country towns and communities, and in the increasing vulnerability of the food supply system. I appreciate Barry's critique on America's fascination with productivity. In seminary, I had a class titled Church Growth It was all about trying to get your church as big as it can get, as fast as it can be made. And then, you know, it's all about how much money is coming in and how many people are raising their hands and how many services you're offering. And then if you're really growing beautifully, well, then you're going to have multiple campuses around the city and maybe you're even going to explode across the country and the world. That's the dream. For a long time, it's not just been an agricultural dream. It's been a Christian dream. But productivity is not the same thing as agricultural or human flourishing. Try to go about your week as productively as you possibly can in every moment. Like, not just to get through work so that you can have a relaxing afternoon, but but even to get through the afternoon and even efficiently get through dinner and even efficiently get through that meal and even efficiently get through that dinner and even or that, that show and even efficiently brush and floss your teeth. I do love efficiency. Oh, but an efficient life... Like, if that's the aim, efficiency is not life. It doesn't allow for space. It doesn't allow for for that slow pace through which we notice things that, that open up our heart, cause us pause to interact with another person compassionately, maybe even ourselves. You see, growth takes time. It takes a lifetime to grow more and more into all goodness. And so with this in mind, Pearl Church is cultivating. We're cultivating a loving story and a loving table that nurture, that preserve, that take time, day by day and year by year to bear the fruit of human flourishing, which cannot be anything less than love. And this brings me to Sacred Story. A couple of weeks ago, I actually walked us through the sacred story, Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. And so I'm not going to do that again today. Rather, I'm just going to offer a summary about our story, which we write The scriptures tell a story about a benevolent creator who is wooing creation out of chaos and into abounding life. According to the story, this generous and self giving creator is embodied in Jesus whose life, death, and resurrection reveal the way of God's loving kindness in the world. Right? Without fall, there is no winter. Without winter, there is no spring. Without spring, there is no summer. Without summer, there is no fall. You see, things must die and be buried in order to rise again. That's not just a Christian notion. That is a very biological notion. As a community rooted in Christianity, the sacred story casts our vision, it shapes our language, orients our hearts, and directs the ways that we mark our days and live out our lives here on earth. And so, here at Pearl, we desire to cultivate this story. We want to know this book, this wild thing called the Bible. We want to wrestle with its content, not with a faith that is absent of reason, but with all of ourselves, all of our experience, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our relationships should all be able to corporately read together this ancient text. We want to, like Ezekiel, eat its words and swallow them deep down into our souls because we trust that these ancient words, which have been used to shape humans for millennia, can meaningfully shape us as thoughtful, gentle, self-giving, and loving followers of Jesus. Jesus, who embodies the heart of the divine, all the while inviting, come, come follow after me. Follow me into nonviolent redemption. Oh, that's so good. Follow me into self-giving and self-preservation. Follow me into declaring God's favor on the least, the different, the marginalized in society. Follow me into forgiveness. I could use some following of Jesus into forgiveness these days. My heart feels so mad. Follow me into wholeness. Follow me into becoming one and all incarnations of love. Follow me into the slow march forward toward a kingdom, call it heaven, a world at peace. From Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Each month it produces and leaves nothing. The trees are for the healing of the nations. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and their servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever and ever. You see, this apocalyptic dream about the end of all things is not darkness but light. It's light made manifest by humans who embody love. It, the end of Revelation could, could probably read something like, the entire world has been lit up by love. Wouldn't that be beautiful? And so at Pearl, we do not have missions, as if life is something to be accomplished or checked off a list. And at Pearl, we don't have a 5 or 10 or 20 year master plan for your life. We just don't have it. Rather, at Pearl, we have what we call rhythms. Rhythms. Those rhythms are expressing a loving story and extending a loving table. There's actually an article in NPR this last week about a book that recently came out from an anthropologist talking about the deep goodness of rituals and how rituals shape our lives so profoundly. Maybe we could call our rhythms rituals. The ritual of this storytelling, the ritual of gathering around a common table where every person belongs. These rituals deeply shape how we see and understand and abide within it all. And being intentional to cultivate, being intentional to nurture, to preserve, being intentional to see time, not as our enemy, but as our friend, we trust that we humans will become more and more animated by love. It is our hope that these rhythms, these rituals that we are cultivating, free you. It's our hope that these rituals woo you, restore you, ground you, and embolden you to fully, passionately, and abundantly live today, here, now, in this this very world, which is being moved and changed and transformed by love, by people of love, by stories of love, and by tables of love. May it be so. And let us pray. God, we do trust that your dream for this world is peace. Peace that heals all that is broken, and there is so much that is broken. Peace that provides for all who have need, and there is so much need. Peace that restores and makes all things new. There is so much need for that to become new that is old. Please fashion us, this church, into your instruments of peace through love, love that grows up inside of us and spills out because of the sacred story and common table. I ask these things in Christ's name.